Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of Governor Hochul's proposed state budget. Then, for our peace bucket, we discuss the United States Secretary of State's recent visit to Israel. Then, as part of our series about former interns at Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Lavender talks with Alexis Goldsmith. Then, Bria Barthel talks to Paul Stewart of the Underground Railroad Education Center about the language of slavery. And we end up introducing you to the new executive director of Unity House. But first, headlines. The clean slate bill, which would seal criminal records in New York after a certain amount of time, passed the Senate Code Committee on Tuesday. But the Times Union says its ultimate fate remains uncertain. Governor Hochul, who backed the proposal in her State of the State address a year ago, has not publicly mentioned the bill this year as she focused on measures meant to change New York's law that ended cash bail for many people with criminal charges. The Times Union reports that eight years after opening Fort Ferry Farm in Latham, its owners have removed their farm stand and halted all access for the public because of what they characterize as a town bureaucracy or of archaic regulations. It will open a farm stand in Columbia County and continue to sell its wares at the Troy Waterfront Farmers Market on Saturday. The TU said other small businesses echoed the farm's complaints, saying that colony officials welcome deep-pocketed developers, big-box stores, and other national change, but regularly stymie independent owners. An Arctic air mass is expected to hit the capital region this weekend, leading to dangerously low wind chills of minus 30. Frostbite could could occur in as little as 10 to 15 minutes. Despite ongoing litigation over herbicide use in Lake George, the Lake George Commission will seek permission to use chemicals this summer to treat the invasion of Eurasian water mill foil. The uh, Lake George Association is already in court over last year's uh, permit. A federal judge in Albany has rejected a motion by the state's regulators to let them award retail marijuana shop licenses in at least four of five New York regions, including the Mid-Hudson Valley including the Mid-Hudson Valley, and have been on hold since the fall due to an earlier court ruling. Some businesses have sued claiming New York's rule requiring an existing presence in the state violates the federal interstate commerce clause. The highest paid employees by the city of Schenectady are primarily police officers, many who earn more than $100,000. Richard Despians, a 10-year police veteran, who grossed $222,333 last year, remains the highest paid city employee. And that's it for the headlines. 
On Wednesday, Governor Hochul released her proposed 2023 to 2024 state budget. Mark, can you explain why this is important and what are the next steps? Well, those us remember Watergate, uh, remember that money is, a, is, is the key to politics and the budget determines what are we going to do about housing, what are we going to do about health care, what are we going to do about the environment. So this is how we write the budget or allocate the money on a yearly basis. Now that the governor has proposed the budget, technically the idea is by April 1st, it's supposed to adopt the budget for next year, which technically starts on April 1st. Uh, legislation now holds hearings. The big thing is about middle of March, both houses pass their one budget resolutions. And from there, they try to negotiate um, the final budget. So going into the content, what are the major highlights and the policy issues? Well, overall, it's a $227 billion budget, which is about 2.4% higher than last year. Um, one of the big news is, is the 10% school aid hike, a 3% college tuition hike for SUNY and uh, you know, community colleges, and an increase in payroll taxes for downstate businesses to support uh, mass transit. You know, she does follow through on her pledge not to raise uh, taxes, though she does do a little carbon fee. And she's also proposing to hike uh, the cigarette tax from $4.35 per pack uh, to $5.35. Now, let's remember the state budget, you know, came about three weeks after the governor's state of the state, and that's where you put out a lot of the good news. So a lot of things that we already knew about, for instance, she announced uh, previously that she wants to um, deal with the affordable housing crisis by helping to fund 800,000 new homes. However, today the, Husses, the Housing Justice Royal Coalition said that her housing proposals or for the benefit of real estate moguls, not working families. Uh, she did follow through with her emphasis on mental health and homelessness, um, and she's asking lawmakers for $890 million to build a little over 2,000 um, new beds for people with uh, mental health issues. Um, she knows that she is putting together the largest investment uh, in the MTA infrastructure in state history, with uh, a $52 billion capital program going through 2024. However, mass advocates would say, yes, largest ever is still not what's needed, and certainly more funding for mass transit is needed upstate. Um, she's asking for a billion dollar fund to help uh, you know, New York City deal with the so-called migrant crisis, um, but you know, she wants the federal government in New York City to also contribute one third of the cost, so that's sort of up in the air. Um, one thing I'll notice, even though the budget technically is about money, in recent decades, uh, governors put a lot of other policy issues into the budget as well. One big issue, she wants to index the minimum wage to inflation, but more liberal Democrats feel that uh, the minimum wage should be raised to a higher level before we start inflation and uh, indexing it to inflation. Um, you know, Hochul did not do well in a recent election. Um, attack for, you know, crime being on the rise because of bail reform. So she wants to give more discretion to judges in setting bail. And she also um, wants a $40 million more for prosecutors. And she says a few things on climate, but we'll discuss that later. Hmm. 
And I was told that a part of the budget that a lot of state lawmakers read is the local school aid. And it impacts uh, because of the quality of the local schools, but also how much local property taxes will they will have to pay. And you mentioned this 10% tax uh, hike in, in school age, and which seems like quite a bit. Yes. Um, probably the largest, certainly in recent memory. But this is sort of a of the end of a multi-year process as a result of a long-standing lawsuit that New York State was really underfunding inner city and, and rural schools. So this is the last of that, you know, uptick uh, in funding. Um, it's a $34.5 billion total, and that includes $125 million to expand uh, full-day uh, pre-K programs, about an extra 17,500 new slots. Um, not a big issue at up here, but big for the teachers. She is proposing raising the cap on the number of charter schools in New York City, and that is certainly going to be something that's going to be a big fight uh, with the, the more liberal Democrats in the state legislature. So you mentioned the climate. So the state's Climate Advisory Council completed three years of work on drafting the scoping plan for state action. What is in the budget for climate? Well, most of her ideas we talked about a couple of weeks ago when she put out her state of the state address. To be honest, not a lot more details. People were expecting more details in some of the proposals. <clears throat> like last year, uh, she is supporting a ban on gas in new buildings, which everybody, well, Climate Act has supported. Though she's sticking with the 2025 dates, which is a year slower than what the advocates wanted, a year slower than what New York City um, passed last year. Um, one of the things people really were trying to get more details on was her carbon pricing program known as cap and invest. Some people know it as cap and trade. Basically requires polluters to buy permits for each ton of carbon they emit. Still don't know the details. Um, she did say she wants to raise $3 billion a year from it, which really is quite a bit short of the $10 billion a year that the Climate Council says we need um, to help people. Um, one thing she says that people did support was she wants $200 million each year to help people purchase like air heat pumps and stuff like that. However, the advocates are asking for $2 billion a year. So you're only, you know, $200 million versus uh, $2 billion. Now, probably the big surprise is that um, she is proposing that the New York Power Authority, which you know is a state agency basically, uh, actually begins to start building renewable energy. Now, this was a big, big fight last year. Uh, it, it, it passed the Senate after some major amendments, but the Assembly Speaker refused to bring it up for a vote, uh, even though it looked like a majority of the Assembly members not only were ready to vote for it, were actually responses of the bill. Now, her proposal is much closer to what Governor Cuomo actually proposed four years ago, rather than the you know, Build Public Renewables Act, which is what the advocates have been pushing in recent years. However, I was a little bit surprised. It seemed like a, quite a few of the public power groups were su semi-supportive of the proposal, um, but they want to make sure uh, labor standards are added uh, to what she's talking about. To be honest, that's usually not a real big sticking point if the state's going to build something big. 
because when there's a lot of money on the table, it's easy to make sure that the unions and, and the workers get their you know fair share of the pie. Uh, just a couple other quick things. Um, she proposes keeping the Environmental Protection Fund at $400 million, which was what it was last year, but it was a little bit of an increase last year. And she also wants $500 million for water infrastructure. Um, this is part of a multi-year rollout to try to deal with uh, the water infrastructure crisis. We need a whole lot more than $500 million. We're talking 10 to $20 billion. And she wants 20, I'm sorry, $200 million for a program to help utility bills, basically to keep utility bills for low-income New Yorkers below 6% of their income. Um, that's a quick summary on, on the climate. Yeah, and you mentioned labor just now and climate. And when I'd spoken with Nami about the proposed budget, or the proposed plan for mental health, it was also labor that was left out. Is Hochul uh, neglecting to fund labor as it should? Uh, neglect's probably not the, the exact word I would use. Underfund, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, it. And, you know, there's always a problem that... Um, basically the workers at the low end of the totem pole, and that includes, you know, home health care aid and mental health workers. They're the ones who get, don't get paid adequately and it, that they don't tend to have the union power to, to more like the construction workers unions or the unions who work at utilities. You know, the ones who are making 35, 40, $45 an hour have more political power and they're able to get their needs met in the budget, and then the ones who are making maybe a few dollars above the minimum wage of that, they they just don't have um, the cloud. And certainly in home care and, and all aspects of the health care, this is hard, hard work with grueling hours, and a lot of people, especially post-COVID, are not willing to do it for such a low pay. And so actually, at least the nursing homes and the hospitals, you know, are beginning to say, listen, you got to give us more money because we have a big worker shortage. So you're saying that labors are, labor unions are a really important part of getting higher wages for different working groups. Yeah, I mean, politicians, you know, pay attention to people help get them elected. And that's a combination of giving campaign contributions. The big unions have enough money to give campaign contributions and to help with the get out the vote effort. And the unions have strong, you know, political operations. And so they, you know, they tend to have more clout. And that's why I want to say with public power, when you're building utility scale facilities, there's enough money that gets thrown on the table that you can make sure that labor gets a, a fairer share than when you're putting money on the table for mental health, you know, programs to provide direct assistance to people. You know, that's when there's less money and the workers at the bottom of the totem pole on, on that one. Well, great. And that was uh, just an overview. So for people who would like to dive deeper into this, get more information on the budget, where can they go? Well, um, tomorrow, every ma- major media outlet will have an overview of the budget. But um, relatively simple website, budget.ny.gov. And that's for all us policy wonks. They'll have the budget briefing books. They get the actual budget bills. They get the Article 7 language. You can spend days just reading about all those budget details. Thanks so much, Mark Dunley. Thank you, Sina Facility. 
All right. So for this week's Peace Bucket, Mark, you spoke about the recent visit of the U.S. Secretary of State who went to Israel, uh, and you spoke with Stephen Zunes. For our Peace Bucket, we're joined by Stephen Zunes, who is um, Professor of Politics and International Studies at the University of San Francisco, with a particular focus, I understand, on the, on the Middle East. And we asked Stephen to come on to talk about uh, Secretary of State uh, Lincoln's recent trip to uh, Egypt, but particularly uh, Israel and the occupied territories, especially with uh, a recent uh, wave of violence taking place there. So, you know, Stephen, what was your overall um, assessment of why this trip took took place? Well, there is increasing controversy, both among Americans and around the world, of the uh, U.S. continued unconditional support for the Israeli government, despite the uh, ascendance of a, a far right wing and avowedly racist uh, uh, elements within that government, including in positions that uh, um, oversee the Palestinian population, both within Israel and in the occupied uh, territories. The uh, uh, Biden administration is, is indeed concerned about uh, this uh, the shift to a further right wing position, uh, but uh, and has expressed concerns about uh, uh, having some of these extremists in power, and uh, including uh, the uh, lessening uh, civil liberties and uh, of, of Israeli Jews and the uh, and uh, the attacks on an independent judiciary. But at the same time, it seems to follow the pattern we've seen for decades, where despite some finger-wagging, <laughs> the uh, U.S. is unwilling to really do anything like conditioning the nearly $4 billion of taxpayer-funded uh, military aid to the uh, Israeli government, um, the uh, refusal to stop blocking the United Nations from taking action regarding the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict um, and uh, their opposition to recognition of Palestinian statehood by various governments or, or UN agencies. So, you know, it really, it, it, it's, um, it's hard to, to uh, see what really can come out of the, uh, the, these meetings. It really does seem, uh, you know, it seem like the uh, same old, same old. Well, you know, it looked like a while back that uh, Netanyahu was possibly headed to, to prison on, on corruption charges, but uh, apparently made a miracle recovery and is now head of uh, what is many people call the most right-wing government in uh, Israeli history, which is probably, uh, you know, saying quite a bit. And, and perhaps I'm confused, but were there not actually large demonstrations in, in Israel by, I guess, the Jewish population about the issue of democracy rights in that country? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are huge demonstrations in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. I mean, though, though they didn't really uh, address the Palestinian issue at all, uh, despite the fact that nearly 20 percent of the Israeli population uh, is uh, is Palestinian. And the uh, and if you count uh, areas of the occupied territories where Israel controls either directly or indirectly, they're actually the majority of the population. Um, so there are some criticisms that it was, you know, basically people defending the rights and rule of law for Jews, but not for uh, Palestinians. But uh, it, it did underscore that uh, there is a still a very uh, large minority of, of Israelis who are concerned about the new government. You mentioned the corruption. I mean, that's a major reason that Netanyahu ran again for prime minister, because 
as as prime minister, he he uh, can't go to jail, uh, despite you know being indicted on multiple counts of um, of corruption. And so I think that the, the demonstrations we saw were more about basic principles of the rule of law. Um, one thing they're pushing through is uh, is a, 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 a bill that by a simple majority, the Israeli Knesset, which is in the part of this far right wing coalition, can overturn decisions by the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, including those that would uh, send Netanyahu and his cronies to jail, including those that would occasionally block uh, the uh, seizure of Palestinian uh, uh, land, uh, the de destruction of Palestinian homes and and other violations of international humanitarian law. So uh, Blinken did actually meet with Gaba, uh, who was the head of the Palestinian government uh, in the occupied territories, and apparently he was hoping that you know, Blinken and Biden might actually come with some ideas about how to actually restore, you know, Palestinian, you know, right over the occupied territories. But it, it seemed like Blinken came with some money for the United Nations, you know, refugee program or restoration, but really didn't seem to have any political solution that he was offering. Not at all. I mean, the U.S. position is that uh, the, the only way of moving things forward is direct negotiations between uh, the Palestine Authority and the Israeli government. But the Israeli government has categorically ruled out any kind of Palestinian state. Um, they continue to uh, steal Palestinian land and colonize uh, the occupied uh, West Bank. Uh, human rights uh, abuses, including uh, murder of Palestinians. I mean, some of the people killed recently have been armed, armed resistance, but uh, the majority have been unarmed civilians. Uh, you know, this is right. You know, this has led to. The, uh, a rise in Palestinian extremists, including massacre outside of a mosque and in Israeli-occupied uh, parts of uh, uh, Greater East Jerusalem. And but you know the the Israeli position, and very much by uh, supported by the U.S., is that security for Israelis is the primary issue, not the uh, uh, occupation and the denial of uh, the right of self-determination by the uh, the Palestinians. And uh, until the United States is willing to push that. Uh, uh, the, the the rhetoric in support of a two-state solution really doesn't doesn't amount to much because again, if U.S. says we support a two-state solution, but we do not believe we should pressure the occupying power to make it happen, and we even oppose nonviolent resistance such as uh, you know boycotts, investment, and sanctions, and opposition to the occupation, I, I, there's really no way we could see uh, uh, how a viable Palestinian state could possibly emerge. Because ultimately, Israeli security and Palestinian rights are not mutually exclusive. They're mutually dependent on the other. So I'm going to give you three minutes left, so I'll ask a broad question. You know, what, what what's going on in the Middle East? And in, in general, obviously, been a lot of protests against the religious leaders in Iran. Israel apparently sent some drone attacks. You know, Blinken visited uh, Egypt, which is not exactly a hotbed of democratic rights these days. Yeah. Is this just going to explode, or is there, you know, an a pathway to peace here? To yeah. Well, you know, e Egypt, for example, holds over sixty-five thousand political prisoners, and they are the second largest recipient of U.S. taxpayer-funded aid and support. So, in addition to supporting Israeli occupation, the U.S. is propping up the Egyptian dictatorship. It also arms these you know, repressive uh, theocratic family dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and and other countries. We were speaking out in support of human rights in Iran, but uh, that's because the 
Iranian governments hostile to the United States. We're not, uh, we're far more reluctant to criticize human rights abuses by our allies. But the people of Iran, the people of Egypt, the Palestinians, the people in the Arabian Peninsula um, are, just like anybody else in the world, want freedom. Uh, they want greater democracy. They don't want to be part of a dictatorial regime or, or under military occupation, whether it be a pro-U.S. government or an anti-U.S. government. And I think until the people of the region you know, have their rights, there is going to be continued uh, protest and unrest. And until the United States stops arming and supporting those that are violating human rights, we're going to be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Any possibility that Congress is going to try to push the Biden administration on any of this, or you know, Israel is just the third rail of American politics, and whatever Biden does is fine? Well, you know, there there is increasing uh, a dissent against the uh, uh, Biden administration's uh, blank check to uh, Israel's right wing government, but uh, only a minority in Congress have raised concerns. Indeed, Hakeem Jeffries, the new Democratic leader, and Chuck Schumer, the longtime Senate uh, Democratic uh, leader, um, have been very, uh, even uh, even stronger than Biden in terms of supporting the Israeli government. So as we saw in Vietnam, Central America, Iraq, and elsewhere, the Democratic Party leadership uh, is to the right of, of rank-and-file Democrats on a, an important foreign policy issue. But like those other examples, I think it's ultimately up to uh, the American people, particularly those of us who are do identify as Democrats, to push our party leaders to take a uh, take positions more in line with human rights and international law. We're out of time. Uh, Stephen Zunez, mm -hmm. professor of politics and international studies, University of San Francisco. Get a web page. Uh, yes, www.stephenzunas.org. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-Z-U-N-E-S. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So I, I mentioned to Steve that he had mentioned uh, Akeem Jeffries, who's an, a minority leader of Democrats in the uh, House. And I actually lived in um, his district when he first got elected in, in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And um, there was a primary, a Democratic primary between him and his very progressive uh, state assembly member, Charles Barron, former Black Panther. My goodness, the amount of um, nastiness over the Palestinian and Israeli issue in, in that race was was, uh, was astounding. Um, what year was but, that? You know, Akeem Jeffries. What year? Now the, what year was that? About six years ago. I see. When we first got elected. Um, but if you're just tuning in, so Peace Bug comes every Wednesday. You can check out mediacentral.org, search button on the top, tap in um, peace and you find it. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunline. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. 
Now to Sanctuary Spotlight, Lavender is beginning a series highlighting past interns. And in this segment, we hear from Alexis Goldsmith about her experience at the Sanctuary and her current endeavors. All right. Hello. I'm here with Alexis Goldsmith, previous intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And she's here today to talk to me about her experience as an intern and what she's up to now. Thank you, Alexis, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So when and how did you first hear about the sanctuary? I first heard about the sanctuary at the Del Mar Farmer's Market. Um, I was talking to a vendor there, uh, Primo Botanica, and uh, they're based in Troy, uh, the chocolate company. And um, I told them I was interested in podcasting. And they said, oh, well, you should look into the Sanctuary for Independent Media for their um, radio program. So I looked them up online and then I applied to become an intern and that's how I got involved. That's awesome. How long ago was that? And what were you doing in the area at the time? That was in 2019. No, that was in 2018. Um, and at the time I was a livestock manager on a lamb farm, uh, about 45 minutes South of Albany. Gotcha. But you were looking to get into to radio and or podcasting you said yes and so then you found the sanctuary and uh how did you start out and what what was your role there and your involvement so my involvement at the sanctuary or my role um i just started as a radio intern so i was learning to do a lot of things from producing interviews that were of of good quality so that included recording them finding people to interview, doing the research on them, and doing the editing after recording them. And then I also was writing scripts. So every day on the show, the hosts have a script that they're reading. They're reading headlines. They're introducing the segment. So I learned how to write headlines. I did a lot of listening to Democracy Now! I took some online journalism courses through edx.org, where you can take accredited university courses for free. So they offer several journalism courses on social change and journalism for advocacy. I took a recording class at SUNY Albany and um, that was all just to inform my internship at the sanctuary and, and make me a better producer. And then I was also engineering the show sometimes. So I kind of did a lot of different things uh, for the show. Yeah, and you kind of touched on one a follow-up question I had, which was, what did you know coming into the internship, and what did you learn on the fly? I didn't know a lot. Um, I just knew that podcasts were popular, and like everybody wants to do a podcast, um, but I learned a lot about the value of local journalism, and um, that's really what has stuck with me. I through my internship at the sanctuary, I learned a lot about the communities in Troy, about the capital region, about the unmet needs by those communities, um, the stories that weren't being covered in other media outlets, and how we were able to kind of respond to that need and what the importance of that was. That's awesome. So when did you end up leaving your role and where did you go after that? 
I was with the sanctuary for almost three years. Um, I lived right across the street. I worked in the garden. I met a lot, so many people um, was exposed to a lot of different, a lot of different people from all over the world, a lot of different music, um, a lot of different experiences. And I hope I was able to help through coverage, through news coverage, through telling storytelling. But I left to work for Beyond Plastics, where I am now. I am a, the organizing director there. So right now I'm working on ending plastic pollution. And mm-hmm. we're focusing, yeah, we're focused not on the waste end of plastic, but on the production end. So right now the U.S. is producing about, uh, well, it's hard to tell because we don't have good data, but at least 40 million metric tons of plastic a year. And that could triple by 2060. And the production of plastic disproportionately impacts Black and Indigenous communities um, where the factories are built and plastic is made from fossil fuels. So it's very polluting. So I do a lot of organizing legislating on that, but I was very sad to leave my role at the sanctuary, but um, I knew it was time to take the next step in my career. That's awesome that you found that you found this, this new role and um, doing some really important work. Yeah. So would you say your, your time at the sanctuary uh, had any influence on what you're doing now or just how did it impact you going forward? Oh, definitely. Um, through the sanctuary, like I said, I was exposed to so many different people and experiences um, that I don't think that I would have crossed paths with had I not been at the sanctuary. I'm from a very small town in Indiana. Um, I grew up in a town of 2,000 people. My high school had 1,600 students in the whole county and I had never lived in a city like Troy. I'd never lived in a city period. Um, so, and living in a city like Troy, especially during the time that I was there, which included the pandemic, which included the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and that historic rally that Troy had in 2020 that included, you know, a record blizzard. I just really came to appreciate the mutual aid that I saw there and the differences of urban living and of course the sanctuary is like a niche place for people who want to do things that are out of the ordinary and extraordinary and the ideas there are just you would never come across them any other way I think it's such a special place so anyway I could go on and on but the answer (laughs) is yes short answer is yes I mean yeah they're very impactful can confirm So on that note, what would you say is one of the most important things that you learned from your time there in those in those three years? That's a long time. So maybe pick a few things. I don't know if you'd be able to pick one. I think I think the most important thing that I learned was the value of the media, the value of the news media and the power that it has. I wasn't really taught in, you know, civics class that the news media is the fourth estate of government. It's a check on all government powers, on all power, really, not just government power. And so if we don't have local coverage, or if even if there is local media, but they're not covering 
the stories that need to be covered because maybe they're not exposed to them or they're not in that community like North Central, then the, the sanctuary is there. The it, Hudson Mohawk Magazine there is there to hopefully fill in the gaps and tell the stories that need to be tell, told. And that's invaluable. And I hope it continues. Yeah, that's a great point. It's really important. And so what, what would you say is maybe one of your favorite memories or experiences? Um, maybe one of the events you went to, or there's a particular memory that always comes to mind when you think of your time there? I think the Spirit of the Suffragettes concert series um, was definitely my favorite in in 2019. Just the music was incredible. It was um, all non-binary and women performers and mostly um, performers of color. And it was just an incredible feat that they were able to put on so many concerts in North Central um, and also the dinners and the games and like the health, the health fair that was going along with that. It's a very special memory. That's great. So yeah, but maybe what's something that you wish you had known or that you wish you had learned while you were there? I guess my only wish is that I would have done more um, (laughs) as in participated in more events. There were a lot of events that I didn't go to because a lot of the time that I was there, I had a second job um, with the food pantries for the Capital District. And, you know, I, I was trying to make friends in the city that I was new to and gardening. So I wish that I had gone to more events. Um, I would like to come back and see the new health sanctuary that they were starting to renovate it when I was there. And I know it's open now. And no, I, I don't really have any regrets. I... <laughs> I loved my time there. Yeah, we miss you. Come back and visit. (laughs) I will. Now I live 40 minutes away out in the country trying to start a tree farm. That's But we want to come back to events. Yeah. Um, Before we end the interview, I just really want to thank Steve and Branda, Steve Pearson, Branda Miller for mentoring me. Also, Mark Dunley for mentoring me. But Steve and Branda really invested a lot in me um, and I really appreciate everything that they did and that we did together. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about your experience and we hope you come back and visit soon. So Alexis mentioned the power of the force of state of the media. One group that really understands that power are the corporations. And that is why we have corporate ownership of so much of the media, which is why you need to make, if you can, a donation to the the media uh, sanctuary. From my household, thank you very much to the media sanctuary for nurturing Alexis and then all the wonderful people who have come through here. Yes, we do very much appreciate Alexis Goldsmith. So next, Bria Barthel, she went and spoke with Paul Stewart, the co-founder of the Underground Railroad Education Center, about the language around slavery and how enslaved people are normally left out of our history books. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And February, as everybody knows, is Black History Month. So black history is important throughout the year, but it gets special attention now. And I wanted to 
um, consult with someone about language for talking about slavery because it's evolved in the past few years. So with me is Paul Stewart, co-founder of Underground Railroad Education Center. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Paul. Thank you, Bria. Pleasure to be here. And through my uh, volunteer and, and participation in, in Underground Railroad Education Center activities, it took me a while to adjust to some of the language that was being used. You know, I had I'd heard about slaves and masters, and yet there were other terms, uh, for other phrases. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, the vocabulary has uh, evolved through time? Well, one of the things that has um, come forward for us is the use of the term freedom seeker, which is um, the term that we prefer to use rather than escaped slaves. So a lot of times people will talk about people who had escaped from slavery and they'll say, well, this person was a slave and he's, he's, he's an escaped slave. You know, like once you're an escaped slave, you're kind of like not an escaped slave. You're a freedom seeker. You're, you're someone who has, who has stepped away from that institution and is no longer enslaved. You're free. You know, so uh, although the law may define you, you know, in a particular way, you, you sort of seized your freedom. So uh, we like to really embrace that term freedom seeker to focus on the person's um, intentionality and uh, self-agency um, rather than that condition that the person is placed under the law. And you mentioned they escape the institution. We often just hear of slavery, and yet you make a point of talking about the institution of slavery. Why is it important to use that word? Sure. This is another way to remind people that it is not something that just existed uh, or that was necessary, um, but it's something that was human created uh, and that was reinforced by laws uh, and customs, similar things. You know, one of the things that I think is often uh, escapes people's remembering is that um, in many of the states where enslavement existed, they also had laws that told enslavers that they couldn't free people, or if they did free people, they had to pay for it. Uh, and so, you know, it was both a, um, it, it was another way of of reinforcing uh, and, and maintaining enslavement. So um, it's an institution, it has economic supports, political supports, social supports, uh, and if those things are chipped away, that institution will fall apart. And you used one word in there that was new to me when I first got involved, and that's enslaver rather than master or owner. Why that change? Sure. Um, one of the things that we like to do is think about what perspective we're using when we talk about what's going on there. Uh, and when we des describe somebody as a master, um, we're sort of buying in uh, to a certain degree to that institution. Uh, they're an enslaver. Uh, abolitionists sometimes like to call them kidnappers, man-stealers, uh, and that's because that's what they are. They are not uh, occupying a role that we sanction, uh, so they're not a master. They're they're an enslaver. You know, they're they're a bad guy basically, um, and we need to remember that. I think that um, one of the pieces that perhaps some listeners may not be be too aware of is that slavery, enslavement, was common in New York State. And uh, I went to a presentation 
about the building of the Erie Canal. And they said, oh, farmers helped build the Erie Canal. And somebody pointed out, yeah, it wasn't the farmers. They probably had their slaves out there digging the canals. So can you give us a perspective on the role of um, enslavement in the building of the country? Sure. You know, back in the 19th century, uh, the first half of the 19th century and in the 18th century, the, the, it was very common for uh, people with means, uh, and usually sometimes that, that would, would mean your common farmer, um, but it was very common for people with means uh, to initiate different kinds of projects like building walls or building a house or building, you know, or digging, digging a, a, a canal, uh, for instance. Or in the case of Washington, D.C., building the Capitol. Or building the capital, surely. And what they did uh, in those cases, is they didn't go out and buy a backhoe. They didn't rent a backhoe. They brought enslaved people there. Uh, and they used the enslaved people to do the, the heavy hauling and the, uh, the bringing of the bricks and uh, maybe even the placing of the bricks and things like that. So it is, although um, there have been very few sources that have really talked about the development of the Erie Canal in relation to slavery, uh, we, we do remember that the slavery in New York State ended in 1827, that prior to 1827, uh, slavery was fairly widespread uh, within the state, uh, although a lot of it was in the Hudson Valley. Uh, and, and the people who were doing projects like digging a very deep ditch uh, that was four, what, four, four feet or more wide, four feet deep and I don't know, 20, I forget what the, the dimensions of the canal, but... Um, Clinton's Ditch. Clinton's Ditch, yes, that's right. Um, but, you know, the typical thing to do would be to go out and bring a team of enslaved people to, uh, to help get that project started. Now, there's a lot of stuff written about uh, folks who were um, Irish laborers who were involved in the building of the canal, particularly in the western part of the state, but um, there are some sources that do uh, make reference to the use of enslaved people um, in, in connection with the building of the canal. Are there any other terms or terminology or ways of phrasing things that you might want to call to our attention? Well, um, we do, like I say, we, we do favor the term freedom seeker, you know, enslaver rather than master. They're probably in the institution of slavery rather than just talking about slavery. Uh, but there are probably some others that, that don't readily come to mind, but uh, but those are the core things, I think. I suspect they don't come to mind because you are so imbued in the language that you don't even think about it anymore. And yet, uh, you talked a little bit about why this is important in terms of the labeling. Can you say a little bit more about what how changing the vocabulary may affect people in how they think about the reality? Well, again, you know, this idea of uh, identifying people as freedom seekers and recognizing that uh, once somebody has chosen to flee enslavement, they're, they're basically, you know, out of, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, they, you know, they're not going to be kept uh, as an enslaved person. There's a story that I just read recently about uh, Charity Still, who um, escaped um, twice uh, in order to to make uh, seize her freedom, uh, or even the story of, of Frederick Douglass, who escaped uh, uh, more than once before he before it stuck, so to speak, uh, and even Harriet Tubman, um, she had her occasion of escaping, then returning, and then escaping again. So um, 
you know, freedom certainly is a mindset. And when people have decided that they're going to be free, uh, even if they're being kept somewhere on a plantation, there's nothing that the plantation owner can really do to contain them. And it's officially an Underground Railroad story now because you mentioned Harriet Tubman, who's probably the best-known person. You also mentioned Frederick Douglass, who people will know for his famous oratory. Uh, And then Henry Highland Garnett is a local person. Tell us about Henry Highland Garnett. Yeah, so Henry Highland Garnett um, and his family uh, escaped from enslavement in the 1820s. They made their way uh, to New Jersey. They spent some time there. Uh, Henry Highland Garnett, as a young person coming up, uh, went to the African Free School in New York City. Later on, he went to the uh, Noise Academy in New Hampshire uh, and then to the Whitsboro School, um, the uh, theology, the manual labor school near uh, Whitsboro, New York. He was called to the ministry. His first pulpit was in Troy, New York, at the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church. Later on, he pastored a church in in New York City and then Washington, D.C. He was the first African-American minister to uh, present a prayer before Congress and preach a sermon. Also, later on in his life, he became the president of uh, Avery College, uh, which was a college that was starting for African-American folks. So um, when people think about someone who has escaped from enslavement, some of these stories are are truly amazing and amazing. uh, you know, they don't, you, don't, you don't go on thinking about that person as a person enslaved all the time. So we've talked about the language of, ensla- of enslavement. We've talked about a couple people who used language in the time to challenge the institution of slavery. If people want more information about Underground Railroad, especially here in Albany, where do they go? Uh, come to our website, undergroundrailroadhistory.org. Uh, you can find out about the Stephen and Harriet Myers Historic Site, uh, schedule a tour experience, and uh, find out about other programs that we have going on. Thanks a lot. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, talking with Paul Stewart, co-founder of the Underground Railroad Education Center. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you, Bria. So I have some bad news. Um, There's actually more slaves on the planet at this moment than at any time in human history. Uh, It's estimated that 50 million people uh, are slaves uh, at this point. Um, oh, 71% are either women or, or girls. Uh, they're basically trapped in brothels and factories and in mines and in farm fields. It perhaps is more subtle than it was during the American slavery or during the Roman Empire, but they're denied their basic rights of, of uh, independence. But thank you very much, Bria and uh, Paul Seward for you know raising this issue with us. For our last story, Unity House, just down the road from the sanctuary, welcomed a new executive director, um, only the third since its inception, and let's meet him now. Unity House provides crisis intervention, advocacy, skills, teaching, information, resources, encouragement, and support to those living in Rensselaer and Albany counties and surrounding communities. Unity House appointed David Bach as Chief Executive Officer of Unity House, and I'm really excited to be joined by him now on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Welcome. I see that. Thanks for having me today. It's been about six months since you came on as Chief Executive Director. So what is the what have these first few months been like for you? I guess I'll, I'll start with saying it's been humbling 
but it really that that that's that's a close second to awesome, right? I mean, this has been an amazing six months. It's almost six months to the day on the fifteenth. Um, it was it was six months since I started in the middle of August last last uh, year. You know, I've had you know a career that spanned over over two decades, mostly in government, um, all public service, all human services. But a lot of it has been in government. I, I've worked in nonprofits before, but again, vast majority at county and state level. Most recently, I was at the Office of Children and Family Services with New York State, and I was there for 10 years um, in two different roles. But my career before coming to Unity House was all around child welfare. So coming to Unity House, which is a multi-services agency, which you, you summarized very well what we do, was you know, really exciting for me because working with people is really that at the core. And it doesn't matter if you're working with children, if you're working with adults, if you're working with adults with, with certain particular needs and services, it, it's just humans working with humans. And we have such a, a great number of people in the Capital District that have committed their lives um, to just helping fellow humans um, along you know this path we call life that unity house sort of wrapped that all up for me and allowed me to to uh follow the legacy of, of the people that that came before me i mean i'm, I'm the third ceo in, in unity house's history and i don't take that lightly the legacy is very important and not only legacy the mission and what's great about unity house's mission is it's very broad and it, it you know not Quoting the mission here, but the way I summarize it when I talk to people who may not know as much about Unity House as people who live right here in Troy, um, you know, if you are in need and you live in our communities, we'll help you. If we're not already helping you, we will. And we don't limit ourselves to what's funded by governments. We, you know, will find ways of helping people, even in, with, you know, needs that aren't necessarily identified as, you know, an, an overarching broad need where there's government grants or government contracts for them. And that's really particular to Unity House and something that, that attracted me to come here when I did and leave state service. One of the services from Unity House is housing. How does Unity House work to give people the tools to be able to be less dependent on the services from Unity House and be able to rent on their own or perhaps eventually have a house that they own? Sure. That's a really good question. And I think it, it, it's um, it's a question that, that permeates all of human services, right? The first thing is to bring people to a point where they have the understanding of what their needs are and how to navigate their system, you know, that you know, of, of supports uh, that they require in order to slowly get them to a point where those services they're less dependent on those services whether whether you, you count that in number of services required or frequency or um, maybe intensity of services offered that that's that's always the goal in all of human services and with unity house you know we meet people where they're at at first right and then through case management services um, we help to work on their goals in order to um, make them self-sufficient in, in the areas that they are able to become self-sufficient in. And you mentioned housing. Um, so taking people literally that 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 start with, with no home and maybe homeless 
um, and getting them into temporary housing um, with supportive services, whether those services center around uh, mental health needs, okay, it could be substance use, substance use needs. Once they're in temporary housing, they're able to work with, with um, our case management staff. Then they're able to come up with a plan on how to be, get into more permanent housing. That's always the goal, permanent housing. Whether that permanent housing has to do with their own apartment or whether that permanent housing is always something that has a supportive service attached to it, whether or not it's an in-house supportive service or, or maybe something where we have people that are working distally located, so we would call them scatter sites, but we have apartments that are service rich we we have you know services that are within close proximity but they aren't necessarily all contained within one building that the people are living in 24 by 7. so our, our agency offers you know the full gambit of supportive services temporary and permanent housing it's one of our um, core tenants to assist people in becoming more independent and part of that is having having um you know housing security and being able to have a place that they call home Many people who seek the services of Unity House face stigma in their daily lives due to they're living with a mental illness, HIV or AIDS, poverty, trauma, many, many more things. So beyond giving services within the Unity House walls, is Unity House changing societal perceptions around people who seek assistance? Yeah, that, 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 that's a really broad, lofty question and goal, right? Changing societal perspectives. You know, I think that that starts at the individual level and starts then and then moves into that group level. And as, as, a, as an agency, um, we try to do everything we can to eliminate any potential stigma. Um, so through that modeling of our own and through our staff, um, I do think that that permeates into the, into the greater society. Yes, our, our, our agency, because of, our goal and the fact that we simply do not believe that anything should limit a person's ability to be accepted in and receive the benefits of society. And when I say benefits, I mean all benefits, not just services. I'm talking about being a contributing member of their community to the ability that they have within themselves, helping them realize that and making sure that the community around them not only supports that, but it's just accepted. Um, you know, oftentimes we talk about tolerance, we talk about acceptance, and it really is acceptance. It, 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 we, we are so past a point where we talk about tolerating anything. We're, we're all humans just trying to make it through life to the best of our ability. And some people need a little more help understanding and realizing that ability. And that's what we do. David Bach, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And before we end... What do you think is the most important aspect of Unity House that you'd like listeners to understand about your organization? I, I would say that the most important aspect of Unity House is that we will stop at nothing to help somebody who's in need. And, and, and that's the most important piece. We're, we, it's, we provide very basic services to very complex programs, but to wrap it up is we really will do anything we can help somebody in our communities um, because helping one person then allows them to help other people. And once they're on their own feet, and that's what really makes communities great is for people helping people. So we're, we may be a big agency, a large, large agency in Troy, um, but we, you know, when you boil it down, we, we are just a group of collection of people trying to help other people. Thank you so much. 
uh, seen it. It's been great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and the opportunity to talk to you today. So during my 30 years as executive director of the Hunger Action Network, I got to work with the first two executive directors of Unity House. So thank you, Senior, for introducing me to the new executive director. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Basila And our engineer was Sina Basila Hickey. We want to thank all the volunteers who helped tonight, uh, including Lavender, Rhea Barthel, and myself. <laughs> We appreciate you listening. Until next time.